0: begin this morning, if I could, before I pray, about updating you on the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. As you know, we have been talking and praying about this now for a few months. We really started the first part of October thinking about and, and kind of setting a goal for our church, asking the Lord just to bless us and, and to use us, and we set a goal this year for $51,400, which is considerably higher than we've ever done before, considerably And we did this after just a lot of prayer and kind of seeking the Lord. And this is the amount, according to the International Mission Board, that it takes to fund one missionary overseas for a year. So $51,400 will fund one missionary in the entirety of what they need for one year. So we set this as our goal, prayed about it, talked about it, had people begin to give even in October all the way through our Christmas Eve service. And I want to report to you this morning... That we not only met our goal of fifty-one thousand four hundred, this church gave just above eighty-four thousand dollars to the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. That means that we can not only fund one full missionary, but another half. And it's about five times, almost five times what we've given in the past, which is phenomenal to me. On top of that, as if that weren't enough, we had another donation at the end of the year for $60,000 to go completely to missions at this church. So that means in the Christmas season, this church raised $150,000 for mission work to be done overseas locally, wherever the Lord's going to use this. And I could not be more excited and more proud of this church right now for what you guys have done and what you've accomplished. The Lord is doing incredible things. If you'd asked me at the beginning of October if we would have raised 51.4, people did. And I said, you know, I'm praying about it. I hope we can. To not only kind of blow through that, and and I'm going to tell you the secret. I I wouldn't have told you before because I wanted you to give. We had just about raised that before Christmas Eve. We had just about come to that number. People had given in such great numbers before that. And so we were able to add on to that Christmas Eve service. So thank you for what you're doing. Praise the Lord for what he's doing. And it just reminds me that my vision is way smaller than the Lord's. You you should learn that about your own life. God's vision is always bigger than yours. And if we'll just trust him... And just seek him and allow him to work. He'll do great things through us. So let's pray together. Father, we praise your name for what you did. We praise your name, Father, for, for what you accomplished through us. And, and this is money, Lord, we're going to just give away, <laughs> which seems a little strange, Lord. But we're going to do it because you called us to do it. And we know that this money is going gonna, is gonna to not only send one missionary full-time but, but another half, Lord. And so I just pray for for what we're going to give and for what we've done, Lord. And I pray you're going to just use it for incredible things. We're never going to know, Lord, this side of eternity, what this money accomplishes. But One of these days, Father, when we walk into the kingdom of heaven after this life, Lord, I want to see how all these dollars that we gave, that this church faithfully gave, I want to see how they led people to Christ all over this world. We're never going to know this side of eternity, but we trust you because we know that you're at work. We know that you are all-powerful, and we trust you with everything, Lord. So I pray for our time together this morning. I pray that it would be beneficial and fruitful and that through the power of the Spirit we would learn from your Word. And Lord, in this coming year especially, we would be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray amen. Well, Happy New Year. Hope you had a great Christmas season and and enjoy time with your family and your friends. And New Year's is always kind of an exciting time because it's an opportunity for a fresh start. And a lot of people use New Year's to kind of set goals and to, some people call them New Year's resolutions because they want to kind of start afresh and anew. And so I kind of did a little research this week I was curious about the idea of New Year's resolutions and I found according to research the top five New Year's resolutions anybody want to guess what number one on the list is lose weight (laughs) it's like in unison lose I was like "This lose weight (laughs) number one lose weight number two get organized number three spend less and save more number four enjoy life to the fullest Number five, stay fit and healthy, kind of related to number one. But here's kind of maybe the interesting and and I guess really the the sad thing about New Year's resolutions. Statistics tell us that less than 10% of the people are actually successful in achieving their resolution. I'm not trying to pour water on your New Year's resolution right off the bat, but most people aren't able to fulfill what they want. In other words, they have a lot of good ideas. And a lot of good desires, and they want to do some good things for the new year, but they just aren't able to accomplish. In fact, one researcher said it like this. Most people never fulfill their resolutions because they set goals that are unrealistic and unattainable. Now, if you've ever kind of started a new year's resolution or set goals, you understand that unless you've got a plan to get there, it becomes very difficult. If you're one of these folks that kind of raised your hand, so to speak, with the idea of losing weight, yeah, I need to lose some weight this year. If you don't have an actual plan to lose weight, you understand it's very difficult to lose weight, right? If you keep eating and not exercising the way you've been doing 2015, chances are you're not going to lose a lot of weight. Trust me, I know from experience. Hoping you're going to lose weight is not enough to actually lose. If you say, you know, I want to do better with a budget and I don't want to spend as much, I want to save more. If you don't have an actual plan to save more and spend less, chances are you're not going to actually achieve that goal. And so I want to kind of take this idea this morning of the, of the New Year's resolution or maybe goals for 2016, and I want to I simplify them. In fact, I want to think this morning about just kind of one spiritual goal. If I could, for you, give you your New Year's resolution or give you your goal for 2016... If I could kind of simplify it for you, I'd I'd like to do that this morning. I want to set for this church and for the individuals, the people of this church, one very simple and I believe attainable goal. And not only are we going to set the goal, we're going to kind of work out a plan for how that goal can happen. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 is going to help us understand kind of what this goal is going to look like. Now let me just tell you, many of you probably already know, but let me just help you understand a little background of Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has already lived his life, he's been crucified, he died, he was buried, three days later he rose from the grave. And at this point in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. So his followers, now just to kind of understand what's going on here, his followers who had kind of given the last three years of their life to Christ have now watched their leader being arrested, beaten, crucified, buried. Now they've seen him raised from the dead. So their emotions have kind of been topsy-turvy. And there's been a lot of fear, uncertainty. They're not quite sure what's supposed to happen. And so Jesus is going to come to them now in the last part of the 28th chapter of the book of Matthew, right before he ascends into heaven. And he's going to give them kind of this final command. He's going to give this final command of how they ought to live their lives. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Here's the command from Christ. We have it on the screens. Go therefore, right? In other words, because of all I've done and all I've given and all I've accomplished, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, if you're taking notes or you're underlining things in your Bible, that first phrase, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, you ought to underline it. You ought to highlight it. It's very important. It's foundational. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you To the end, I'm with you always, to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission, right? We've seen that, we've studied that, we've heard that. Now before I get to our resolution, kind of our goal, I'm going to get there in just a minute. I want to kind of set a foundational truth for you that's going to help us better understand how we can achieve this goal and why this goal is so important. So here's truth number one, foundational, before we get to this resolution number one. We must not be spectators in our faith we must be active participants now i want to say that again because for some of y'all that may be news to you we must not be spectators in our faith we must be active participants we are actually believe it or not called to do something and the lord requires certain things of our lives you understand that Our calling as followers of Jesus Christ is to be active, not passive. If your faith is all about kind of being a spectator and watching what other people are doing and seeing other people serve and being very passive in your life in Christ, you're you're missing really, I think, the fundamental truth of all the Scripture. We're not called to sit and soak We're called to go and do. You understand? I believe the whole reason the Lord calls us together as a body of Christ on a regular basis, and he does that, it's scriptural. Don't forsake the assembling together. I believe the reason he does that is so we can come and kind of be refueled and worship him together and be re-energized and remember what we're called to do, and then we go out and do. You understand? So in other words, kind of the worship time and the Sunday morning study and all the things we do on Sunday morning really is the beginning of the process for the week for us. It kind of launches us off into the world to go and to do and to share and to live our lives for Christ. It's not where we come and kind of listen and soak and then go home and do nothing about it. It's interesting to me how Christ begins his command to his disciples. The last words he speaks on this earth to them, the last command he gives them, he says, you need to go. Don't just sit around in the upper room, don't just talk about it, go. Now for me, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and growing up in a Southern Baptist church meant that Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the Great Commission, was something we talked a lot about. It's something we heard a lot about, we read a good bit of it, in fact, I bet a lot of us, especially those that have kind of grown up in church, could have almost quoted this. We could have explained what it meant. We could have talked through this idea. And, and most of us, when we think about the Great Commission, we think about it on the lines of evangelism. And that's exactly right. When the Great Commission is a, is a clear call to share and to talk about our faith and to lead people to Christ. But I think there's more to it. We're going to kind of delve into that here in just a second. But it's interesting to me as Christ kind of talks to us about evangelism and baptism and eventually discipleship, which we'll see in just a few minutes, the first thing he tells us to do is to go. Now, this time of year is when a lot of people kind of, hopefully at least, maybe you you think through your faith again. You kind of, you re-up, so to speak. Maybe that'd be a way to think about it. And so people have thoughts like, you know, I'm going to do a better job this year with, and they fill in the blank, on a spiritual level. And a lot of people say this time of year, you know, I want to do a better job of reading my Bible on a regular regular basis. That's That's a great thing to do. You should be doing that. And so what a lot of people do this time of year is they seek out a Bible reading plan. I've had people talk to me about that. There are all sorts of Bible reading plans online. We've got some links on our website to great Bible reading plans. Some of you may have taken it a step farther and actually gone to a website and looked at some bible reading plans maybe you've even gone a step beyond that and you've printed it out and it's already on your refrigerator right with a magnet and a little pen tape to it so you can check it off as you go those are great steps but here's what you need to understand it's not enough just to think about reading your bible it's not enough just to talk about reading your bible it's not even enough to print it out and to put it on your refrigerator with the pen in preparation for reading it. Those are all great things. But unless you actually go and do and read your Bible, you're kind of missing the point, right? Christ says, Go therefore and do something. I think this is honestly a wake-up call for some people. Maybe you've never quite considered it or maybe you've considered it and you've never kind of examined your heart and your life based on this truth. But the thing you ought to be asking yourself as we kind of begin with this word go is what am I actually doing? How am I actually being active for the Lord? What are the things in my life? If I said, do you make the list of the things you're doing for the Lord? How are you being active in your faith? And more specifically, not only how are you being active in your faith, but how are you being active to obey the commands and the teachings of the Lord? Because the Lord's going to give us some real clear things here. He's not just going to say go and wander around and figure it out as you go. He's going to say go therefore and then specific. Look again at verse 19. Bring it back up for me if you would please. Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen and 20. Go therefore, right? So there's the beginning, right? We're going we're to kind of kick you off a dead center. We're going to get you moving. And then he gives us this very clear command. Go and make disciples of all nations. You understand that? Christ says, not only should you be active, not only should you be going and doing, but here's what I actually want you to do, and it's truth number two: we are called. The Bible tells us to make disciples. We are called to make disciples. Now, there there are lots of other things in Scripture that we're supposed to be doing, and I'm not standing here in the pulpit telling you this is the only thing we're supposed to be doing. There are lots of things the Lord commands us to do, but, but I would say that foundationally, right? if we wanted to kind of just set everything else aside and say foundationally, the things we ought to be doing is, is really found in Matthew 28, 19, 20. it's, it's leading people to Christ, leading them to baptism, and then discipling them and training them. Christ says this is kind of the call of Scripture. This is the Great Commission. And so I want to give you your spiritual New Year's resolution. That's a little bold of me to give you your resolution, but that's what I'm going to do. If you don't like it, just skip it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Here's what I want you to do this year. Here's kind of your goal or your spiritual resolution. I've got it up on the screen as well. I resolve to get involved and stay involved in one-on-one discipleship this year. That's your goal. Just leave it up there for a minute if you would. I'm going to challenge every person in this congregation, every person in this church, and our staff has kind of got a plan for this, and I'm going to walk through some of that here in a few minutes. But I'm going to challenge every person to get involved and stay involved in one-on-one discipleship this year. Now, let me just be clear. I'm not just talking to your neighbor. Some of you are thinking that guy's going to be amazing at that. I mean, I know him and I know or I know her and what she's going to do. (laughs) Oh, wait, you're you're talking to me, Adam? I thought you were talking to this guy. No, I'm talking to you, I'm talking to every person. I want you to be involved, right? And I've I've, I've phrased this very specifically for a couple of reasons. I want you to get involved and stay involved. I don't want you to do it once and say, check that off the list, man. Woo, you know, accomplish that goal. I want you to get involved, start the process, and then stay involved. And I use the word one-on-one because some people would say something like this. Well, you know, I'm already in a Sunday school class, or I do a Bible study on Saturday mornings, or amen. Please, by all means, keep doing that. We're called to do that. It's a part of our walk with Christ. We need to be in groups of people delving into the truth of the word of God and being challenged in our faith. You should continue to do that. But I'm not talking about a Sunday school class. I'm not talking about a Bible study with other people. Although those are incredibly important, you should keep doing them. I'm talking about a one-on-one discipleship process. That means you and one other person are involved in discipleship. You say, what, what does it even mean to be a disciple? I've got a definition for you. You can leave that up for just a few minutes if you would, please, Wanda. A disciple attaches himself or herself to a teacher, identifies himself with that teacher, learns from that teacher, lives with that teacher, learns not simply by listening but by doing. The word we may use, and, and maybe it's a little far into some of y'all, maybe a little more old school, but it's the word Apprentice. It's the idea when you kind of learn from somebody else. There's this master or there's this person that's really good at something. And so you want to understand how to do that more. And so you become an apprentice. You kind of follow this person along. You work with this person. You study under this person. You train under this person. And you understand through this process how to be like this person. That's what discipleship looks like. Now we're all disciples of Christ. Let's be clear. We're all called to be followers of Christ, to live for him, to to operate in such a way that we bring him honor and glory. But discipleship and the idea of learning to be more like Christ doesn't happen overnight. Okay, there's not some magic formula I can give you. There's not some pill you can swallow. There's not something you can say and it happens. It's a long, ongoing, sometimes very difficult process. But here's the thing we need to understand. If we're really going to grow in our faith, we need other people to help us. You understand that? We need other people to either pour into our lives and train us and teach us. Or we need to pour into other people's lives. Now we've we've been in a, a new subdivision. We moved about a year and a half ago, as some of you may know. And because the subdivision was new, a lot of the lots weren't yet built out. And so we've kind of had this interesting process over the last several months of watching these houses be built, literally just right near us, right across the street and down the road. And I'm not a construction guy. I'm fairly handy around the house, but I, you know, building a house, I don't really know. So it's been a neat process for me to watch these things kind of from the ground up. You start with just, you know, some trees and dirt, and a few months later, you've got this fully developed house. And it's interesting to me because by far the the, the neatest part of the process is the framing of the house. Now the framing is where they come in with the two by fours and they put up the walls and the roof, and you know, they don't they don't finish anything out yet. But that's the framing process. And people come in behind them and put in sheetrock and roofing and carpeting and all that. But the, the framing is neat to me because they'll, they'll pour the slab for this house, and then that's got to sit for several weeks to cure, to get stronger. And so they pour this slab, and then literally for a month, nothing happens. And you're thinking, you know, are they really building this house or not, right? And so there's this slab of concrete, and all of a sudden, kind of out of the blue, and I know it's planned, but I have no prior knowledge of it, out of the blue, this group of people shows up, with all this wood, and four days later, there's literally a house there. It, it's just unbelievable. It always amazes me how quickly they can frame these houses. And so I started watching this and thinking a little bit more about this process, and I began to understand that kind of when they show up on site, they don't show up and go, what do you think we ought to be doing? They don't look at each other. What, what do, you th- do we have any wood? Do you think we need some wood, guys? Does anybody have any nails? Anybody thought about that? What's this house supposed to look like? They don't have these conversations. They they show up. They've got all the tools they need. They've got all the wood they need. And they just just get to work. They they show up on site and they know what they're going to do and exactly how they're supposed to do it. You understand that? They've got a very, very clear goal. They've got a very clear plan. Now, if those guys showed up on site... And then three weeks later, the superintendent drove by, and those guys were all just kind of sitting out there playing games and eating some sandwiches, and there was no house. Guess what would happen to that little crew? They'd be fired, right? Immediately, they'd bring in another crew. Why? Because the superintendent, the guy that kind of runs that operation, has got a very specific goal and objective he's got to meet. And when that team can't meet it, he gets them out of there and gets somebody in that can, Now here's the question we ought to be asking ourselves as it relates to our walk with Christ. What are we as believers supposed to be doing in life? What's our actual goal? What plan do we have to grow in our faith? Because if we're not careful, we kind of end up being like this group of guys that's going to get fired. We just kind of show up at church. We kind of live life. And we don't really have a plan about spiritual things we're not really sure what we're supposed to be doing about any of it. We never set any real goals. We don't have any process to mark whether we've grown in our faith. We're not really sure what we're supposed to do. And so if we were kind of to take a step back and understand a little bit more what Christ calls us to do, he gives us a real clear plan. It, it could not be any simpler. Bring, bring verse 19 and 20 back up if you would, please. Christ gives us this clear plan. Go, therefore, and what? Say it. That's our call. And so the question ought to be, as we kind of live our lives for Christ, who have I made into a disciple? I mean, one of these days, folks, if we believe the truth of Scripture, we're going to walk into eternity, and the Lord's going to ask us some questions about the way we lived our lives. Now, our salvation isn't based on works. I'm not saying that. But the Lord's going to say, hey, man, how'd you you do with the Great Commission? (laughs) Did you share your faith with anybody? Were you able to lead anybody to Christ? Did you lead anybody to baptism? How about discipleship? Who'd you disciple? Who were you discipling? Who did you spend time with? And so Jesus gives us this this real clear plan. It really couldn't be any clearer. Go and make disciples. Now there are other things that go with that. There are other things we ought to be doing. But if we're not doing this, if we're not making disciples, then I think we're actually missing the teaching of Christ, aren't we? And so Jesus says, Okay, I want you to make disciples, and then I'm going to give you some specifics about it. I love how he does this. Look again at verse 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. By the way, he throws the all nations in there. That's a whole, there's a whole missions sermon there, but I'm not going to talk about missions this morning. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So then he gives us kind of these clues about what a disciple ought to look like. How do we actually get to this point of making disciples? So there's kind of two things he shows us here. The first thing is if we're going to make disciples, we have to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the first key to discipleship is baptism. We'll talk about that. Now go to verse 20. And then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. you see that? So Christ says, look, you you need to go make disciples. That's the goal. That's the objective. And the way you're going to get there is by leading people to Christ, baptizing them, and then teaching them to obey all the things that I've commanded. So there are kind of two ideas. And I want to think for just a minute about this idea of baptism first because I think it's important for us to discuss just for a minute. Now, scripturally, we would say that repentance and salvation comes before baptism. So Christ doesn't mention salvation here because there's this assumption based on his teaching all through the Gospels that before a person can be baptized, they have to repent and accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. In fact, if you were to kind of study through Scripture, especially the book of Acts, there's always this pattern of repentance, salvation, and then baptism really in that order. You don't find people that are baptized first, and then they repent and accept Christ. So there's this kind of simple process of repentance, sharing our faith with people, leading them to faith in Jesus Christ, leading them into baptism. Now, somebody say, well, why is baptism so important? Why is baptism a big deal? Well, it's important because several reasons. One, Christ commands us to do it. It's one of the two ordinances of the New Testament. Christ says to the local church, you need to baptize people and you need to partake in the Lord's Supper. We do those on a regular basis at Rosemont. But unfortunately for the modern church and the western church, sometimes I think baptism has become maybe not as big of a deal. Maybe not as important to us as it used to. And I would just encourage you, if you don't think baptism is a big deal or baptism is maybe not as important to you as maybe it used to be, you ought to spend some time, if you ever get a chance, go into another part of the world where Christianity is not as accepted. We see this in South Asia all the time. If you live in a place where Christianity is not really accepted, for you to step out and be baptized publicly is a big display of who you are, who you've become, and your faith in Christ. Because here's what you're saying. All these people that surround you that you grew up with, You're saying, look, the religion that you you taught me when I was a kid that I grew up in, I don't believe that's true anymore. I don't believe what you teach. I'm going to separate myself from this religion. And in essence, I'm going to separate myself from this society, oftentimes from my family. I'm going to take a stand for Christ. Publicly, I'm going to be baptized so the whole world knows that I've set all this stuff aside. And from this point forward, I'm going to live for Christ. Now, in that setting, it's a big deal. Because when you decide to be baptized in one of those settings, when the people around you don't accept Jesus Christ like you did, you're setting yourself up for incredible persecution. We see it. People get baptized, and then they get ostracized, then they get fired from their job, then they get arrested, then they get beaten, and on and on the list goes. So baptism for us is an important process in our salvation. It doesn't lead us to Christ. It doesn't save us. I want to be clear. Salvation is in faith alone. But baptism very simply is a picture and a sign of our obedience to Christ. Here's what baptism says. And there's a reason that, that Christ gave us the instructions the way he did. Christ was baptized. We know that through our scriptural study. We understand that. When Christ was baptized, he was immersed in the water, the Bible says, and, and taken back out. He came up out of the water. It's, a, it's a, really a picture of his death, his burial, and then his resurrection. So when we go through baptism, what we're saying to the world is this. Look, this old life that I used to live before Christ, I'm, I'm, I'm dead to that now. It's dead to me. It doesn't matter anymore. And because I've kind of put that to death, and that's literally the phrase that Paul uses, I've put the sin life to death. Because i put that to death, I now need to be buried, and because of the power of Christ in me and working through me, I can now be resurrected to walk in newness of life. Now, baptism is an interesting thing because when I baptize people or some of the folks at our church baptize people, the person that gets baptized is kind of completely under my control for just a few seconds. You ever thought about that? Now, I've never been mean and kind of left them under for, I'm not going to do that. But there's this sense and it's, it's, a, it's the reason it happens like this. When we are dead to sins, it's only through the power of Christ. Do you understand that? That we can be resurrected and experience new life. It's only through him. We, we can't die ourselves and then raise ourselves back up to new life. It's only through Christ. And so it's not only a picture of his death, burial, resurrection. It's a picture of our death to sin, our burial, and our resurrection to then walk or experience new life. And it's a picture of his power working through us. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says it like this. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's a picture of what Christ has done in us, it's symbolic. But it points to his glory and his resurrection and our changed lives because of the union with Christ. And so the the author here in Matthew tells us, as Jesus is explaining the idea of discipleship, it begins with salvation and then with baptism. That's kind of the first step. So before you can disciple somebody, they have to be a Christian. That's the first step. Now look at verse 20. This is kind of the second step. Pull that book up if you would, please. So we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. This is step two, right? So we lead them to Christ and baptize them. Then we teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Christ says lead them to Christ, lead them to baptism, and then teach them to live for Christ. Now, discipleship is very simply training somebody to be more like Christ. It's a mature believer pouring into the life of a less mature believer. Now, in a, in a church this size, I'm fully aware that their people are people going to fall into both categories. Some of you today will probably think to yourself, you know, I, I think that'd be great if somebody would actually train me. I would love to know more about Scripture. I'd, I'd love to, to learn more about how to be a, maybe a godly father or a godly mother. I'd learn to love how to kind of live for Christ at work. I'd, learned, I'd love to learn how to be Christ-like when things aren't as good as I would hope. I'd love for somebody to pour into me. That's one group of people. There's another group of people that have been believers for a number of years, several decades. In fact, if you've been a Christian more than 20 years, you fall, I think, right in this category. You may still need to be discipled, but I think if you've been a Christian for 20-plus years, you should be discipling somebody else. And so it's something like this. You say, you know, I, I think I can may help a younger believer. Maybe I could, I could pour into that person. Maybe I could spend time with that person. Maybe I could help them understand better what it looks like to be a godly husband or godly father or godly mother. And I'd be willing at some point to kind of help a younger believer, train a younger believer to understand exactly what it means to be mature. I think every person in this church falls into one of those two categories. Now l- let me just speak for a second to those that I believe are the leaders. Paul uses a very interesting phrase in Ephesians chapter 4, and I've got that up as well, if we can pull that up, Ephesians. I think I've got 11 and 12. So Paul's using this interesting discussion in Ephesians to talk about unity and growth and how we ought to be growing. So he challenges, and he kind of tells us that he gave, this is Christ, gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now don't, don't move yet. Go back. All those people are within the context of the local church. Go back to 11 for me, please. All those are in the context of the local church. So the local church he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. There's been a lot that's been written about that verse. A lot of people have different ideas about what each one of those things mean. But I I think you can summarize it. And this is kind of a general idea. But we could say Ephesians 4.11 is talking to the leaders of the church. Okay, these are the leaders. And if you've been a believer for a few decades, I would put you into this category, right? So If you're a leader, according to Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, you've got a very specific calling. Go to verse 12 now, if you would, please. This is your calling, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, if you're a leader, your job is to equip the rest of the church to serve the Lord. You understand that? That means you're to train younger believers you are to disciple younger believers. You're to mentor younger believers with one specific person, a goal in mind, to train them so they can live for Christ and serve him in all things. The mature believer should be equipping the church to do ministry. That's discipleship. You say, okay, what does that look like actually? Well, it looks like you spending time with younger believers. It looks like you're taking somebody to lunch once a month or once every couple of weeks. It looks like you just talking to them about the things of the Lord, talking to them about marriage, talking to them about faith, talking to them about struggles. One of the things that always helps me, and you may think this sounds silly, but it always helps me when I talk to a, maybe a more mature believer to understand that they struggle too. That helps me. Because everybody knows we all struggle, right? You have struggles, I have struggles. And to know that there's somebody that's kind of farther along in their faith than I am, that they're struggling with something, it brings me a lot of comfort. But it brings me even more comfort when I realize that person is struggling and they're seeking the Lord through that difficulty. Maybe it's not going the way they want it to go, and so they're spending more time in prayer. Maybe they're struggling with a certain issue in life, and so they're spending more time in study. I'm reminded of First Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. You, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's this model we see in the New Testament where more mature men train younger men, more mature women train younger women. It's just a very clear model. And yet I think even though it's the clear command in scripture, although it's the way the Lord has called us to live, oftentimes in churches we've kind of forgotten how to do this. One writer said it like this, in many respects we have departed from this pattern. In most churches the congregation pays the pastor to preach, win the lost, build up the saved, while the church members function as cheerleaders if they are enthusiastic or spectators. The converts who are one and baptized are given the right hand of fellowship. Then they join the other spectators. How much faster our churches would grow, how much stronger and happier our church members would be if each one were discipling another believer. This is the responsibility of every believer and not just a small group who have been called to go. So here's the question we ask. Personally, individually, this is the question you ask yourself. Who are you discipling or who is discipling you? I think every Christian ought to be able to answer those questions. Now, if you're to the point now where you say, I'm I'm really not sure who's discipling me and I'm certainly not discipling anybody else, I want you to begin to pray about what the Lord can do. I want you to begin to pray about how he can use you Pull up that resolution again for me, please, Wanda. And I want you to think and consider this goal and this resolution to get involved and stay involved in one-on-one discipleship this year. Now, let's go back to the scripture. We need to kind of finish this up. We've set a goal for the people of this church to be involved in discipleship. That's kind of a big picture look. Our staff is going to be very intentional about monitoring this. And I'm going to tell you how that's going to work here in just a second and give you kind of some steps to take. But some of you are probably to this point, as we wind this down this morning, some of you are probably to the point where you've you've now seen the scriptural evidence. And maybe you've known it before. It's not a surprise to you. But you've seen the scriptural evidence. You've been kind of challenged with the truth of what Christ has called you to do. As a leader, you're supposed to be discipling. You're supposed to be making disciples. How is that working out in your life? You've been confronted by that truth. But some of you are thinking, I have no idea how to make this work. I believe it's true. I understand it. In, in a perfect world, I'd love to do this, but I don't have any idea how to, how to really make this work. Well, there are two answers to that question. The first is I want to help you with how to make it work. I'm going to get there in just a second. But the second answer is scriptural because I want you to look at how Christ ends verse 20. Remember, these are disciples that have been afraid, fearful, unsure of the future. They've been literally hiding in the upper room until they saw him again. Now he's gonna leave them forever physically and he's gonna leave them with a real small challenge of reaching the world for Christ, right? It's this incredible, incredibly difficult moment these disciples have faced and I can I can guarantee you Every one of them were afraid and unsure, just like some of you are right now. So look at how Jesus ends verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then here's the hope of Christ. And I am with you always to the end of the age. You see that? Here's the third truth we need to hold on to. That's foundational in everything we do, especially in discipleship. Number three, Christ is with us. See, the beautiful part about discipleship is you don't have to do it alone. The beautiful part about discipleship is you're not by yourself. See, the thing we need to understand about discipleship is this is Christ's idea. It's his calling. It's his command. And he says, listen, if you'll just follow me and trust me and rely on me, I will be be with you always. I'll give you the strength to disciple. I'll give you the ability to disciple. I'll give you the passion and the knowledge and the understanding you need so you can disciple or allow people to disciple you. So here's how we're going to end today. I'm going to give you a couple of outlets that I want you to do. We need a plan. If I just talk about this and then just kind of let it sit out there and never said anything about it or didn't do anything about it, it'd probably just kind of die on the vine. So I'm going to issue this challenge today. I want you to resolve to be involved in a discipleship process, one-on-one discipleship process, and stay involved. And then I'm going to give you some specific things I want you to do right now. During our time of invitation here in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to pray specifically. You can come down here. I'd love for this altar to be filled. But if you feel more comfortable praying where you are, you certainly can. I want you to pray about a couple things, just specific prayer. I want you to pray about, number one, who should I be discipling? And then number two, who should be discipling me? Now, the Lord's going to lead everybody to just do different things. Some of you are going to feel like, I need to be discipled and I need to be discipling somebody else. Others of you will feel like, I just need to be discipled myself. And then others will think, you know what, I think I can actually disciple somebody else. You're going to fall in one of those three categories. But I want you to begin to pray specifically that the Lord would use you and, and give you the strength and knowledge and the ability to know exactly who you ought to be discipling or who should be discipling you. That's the first thing. You're going to pray The second thing is we've created for you a very simple outlet. We have a real fancy modern system of paper and clipboard, okay? pins. I'm gonna give you the challenge either during the invitation or after the service is over. If you say, you know what, I I get this. I'm I'm with you. I'm not sure quite yet how it's gonna work or exactly what I wanna do, but I'm, I'm on board. You count me in, and if you'll help me, Adam, I'll do this. I want you to put your name Put a phone number or email address right there and you're going to check off a box. Either I want to be discipled or I'm willing to disciple somebody else. Once you put your name on this sheet of paper, our staff is going to contact you. We've got some things we want you to understand and some training we want to offer you so you can better understand exactly what discipleship ought to look like. And then the third thing, some of you say, man, I get this. I'm with you. I've been doing this for a while anyway. I want you to put your name down and you say to me, I'm already discipling whoever. Because what our staff is going to do is we're going to compile a list of people that are actually involved in discipleship. It's going to go in our conference room. We're going to monitor it and pray for it on a regular basis. Because this is a big deal. This is the command of Christ. And if we're not actually making disciples, I think we're missing the truth of Scripture. And so I have confidence that the Lord is going to use you. I know that God is doing great things through this church already and I have absolute confidence he's gonna blow our minds of what's gonna happen through discipleship. But I promise you one thing. If you'll trust the Lord and his teaching and you'll do this and step out on faith and either be disciple or disciple somebody else, I promise you January of 2017, next year, you'll look completely different than you do now all for the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clear teaching of Scripture. It's always so understandable, Lord, and challenging. And it just, Father, it always just challenges our, our, our thoughts and our presuppositions and our desires. So, Lord, I pray that this will just be a challenge for us, Lord. I pray we'd understand not only the truth of Scripture, not only what you're saying, but I pray you'd give us the, the ability, Lord, really and the courage to step out on faith and do this to recognize, Father, that we ought to be making disciples. We ought to be discipling others or being discipled ourselves to grow in our walk. And Lord, I know that's challenging for people, that's scary for people. They're not quite sure what to make of this, but I pray you would just give them comfort and understanding, Lord, that this is your idea and you've called them to do it and you're going to be there with them to the end of the age if they trust you. Lord, may that peace right now of of your presence and your power, Lord, just kind of Filter down through our minds and our hearts and our lives right now. And give us the confidence to know that we can accomplish things if you're right there with us, giving us the power and the strength. So use us, Lord, just to empower us and equip us to make disciples for your honor and for your glory, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.